This podcast is brought to you by Erickson Immigration Group. Welcome to Immigration Nerds. Glad to be back. Happy New Year. Today we have a special guest, Dr. Robert McLemon, Professor of Geography and Environmental Studies at Wilfrid Laurier University in Waterloo, Canada. Recently, he released a report for Migration Policy Institute on how will international migration policy and sustainable development affect future climate-related migration. Today, we discuss his findings and the steps we can take to help. I'm Ian Gaines. Come join us Beyond Borders. First off, Happy New Year. Made it to 2021. Yeah. (laughs) Hopefully it's a little bit better for most people than 2020 was. Yes, yes. That's what we have. A fresh start. Got our fingers crossed for it. But uh, thank you for coming on. So first, could you just give an introduction of what you study and a little bit about your career background? Sure. Well, uh, I research uh, the interactions between climate change and human well-being in a variety of ways, but primarily I focus on how uh, changes in the climate or in the environment more generally affect uh, migration patterns, where people live, where they move. Uh, And I've looked at historical cases, I look at uh, contemporary cases, and I also do some projections into the future as to how a changing climate is going to affect global migration patterns. Uh, I've been working on this since Oh my goodness. Uh, I did my master's thesis on it back in the 1990s. Um, I used to be a foreign service officer. I used to work as a diplomat for the Canadian government. And so for the first decade or so of my career, I spent a lot of time abroad in Asia, in Central Europe, even in the United States, uh, where I got to meet a lot of people who were migrating or planning to migrate. So I learned a lot about people's motivations for migration, why they tend to want to move or need to move. Uh, And then I've sort of translated that professional knowledge into my academic career. Uh, And and my academic training actually is in uh, physical geography. So uh, I think I bring a kind of a unique blend of um, understanding the physical science and understanding the migration science as well and some of the policy dimensions. Uh, And so that's what I tried to do with my research. Right, absolutely. That's, That's a very important tie between geography and mobility and migration. Yeah. You recently released a report for Migration Policy Institute on how will international migration policy and sustainable development affect future climate-related migration? Uh, That's a mouthful, but uh, (laughs) could you share a little bit about that? Sure. Well, as you know, as your listeners will know, the climate is changing, uh, primarily because of, you know, human consumption of fossil fuels. Uh, and also deforestation in the tropics as well. And so as the temperature rises in coming decades, uh, then decisions that we make today, not only in terms of sea or greenhouse gas emission policy, but also migration policy are going to affect where people live in coming years. Uh, And so I was asked to do this uh, report, as you say, with the very long title, Uh, but the the point is that the climate's changing and people are going to have to adapt. Uh, People in the United States, in Canada, but also uh, people in other countries as well. And one of the ways they may need to adapt is to relocate. Um, And so their options for relocation, where they will move to and whether they move and under what circumstances they will move uh, depend upon two key factors. One is development, so social economic development. Obviously in a country like the United States where you will have climate related disasters, whether they're wildfires in California or extreme storms along the Atlantic or Gulf of Mexico coast, uh, people are affected. How they respond, how they adapt, where they go 
depends on their access to, um, to uh, financial resources, but also the government's ability to assist them. In other countries, and so I've done work, for example, with African researchers in East Africa, governments do not have the same financial resources and households do not have the same financial resources. So when they experience a, a severe weather event, the way that they adapt, they're much more limited. And so they often need to relocate. So how we uh, move forward in coming decades in terms of socioeconomic development around the world, uh, in other words, you know, are, are poor countries going to remain poor or are we going to assist them in improving their, their standards of living, uh, that will be a big determinant of where people are uh, and where they move. And the second thing is migration policy. Uh, in recent years, uh, rich countries like the United States and Europe and Australia have been tightening up their borders and allowing fewer people to migrate legally. That doesn't mean to say they don't migrate, it just means that they're no longer able to go through regular channels. And so you see a lot of the uh, politics at the U.S. border, for example, with Mexico, where you have a lot of people from Central America trying to enter the United States and are finding it difficult to do so. Uh, the border was much more porous, I guess you would say, uh, in previous decades. Uh, and it's not just the United States. Um, it, Europe and Australia are doing the same thing. And so the, the types of migration policies that we have in the future will influence where people end up going and what circumstances they migrate under. Got it. So talking a little bit about those migration policies and uh, key areas of focus from your research and what you learned, uh, what do you think are the areas of focus we should have? Well, one thing that uh, I've, I've seen over the last 20 years or so is a, a trend towards, a very worrying trend towards criminalization of migrants uh, to use language like illegal migration. Um, and historically, when you think about it, migration is just a natural human behavior. Uh, people move uh, as they need to. And, and the most common reasons people move are for economic security, to be reunited with loved ones. Uh, unfortunately, uh, large numbers of people around the world need to move because of uh, political violence and, and uh, as refugees, unfortunately. But uh, what we've seen in the last decade or so in particular in the United States, in Europe, in Australia, is the use of technologies and the use of the law to prevent people from moving uh, with uh, dignity and with, uh, with legal rights. Um, when you think about it, it is a universal human right to claim sanctuary uh, and protection from violence and persecution uh, in another country. We have a UN uh, Convention on Refugee um, uh, Protection of Refugees. And so if I were someone who was persecuted in my home country, it is my universal human right to go to another country and to request asylum uh, and to have my case heard. That is, and, and most countries around the world have signed off on that. But what we see happening right now in many parts of the world is countries saying, don't even come near our borders. Don't, don't even approach them. We are going to uh, crack down on you and we are going to keep you at arm's length so that you cannot even exercise that basic uh, human right. And one of the most troubling aspects for me is that when you look at the United States, Canada, uh, Europe, uh, Australia, Japan, wealthy countries with aging populations, we need immigration to rejuvenate and replenish our workforces and our economic well-being. And so this criminalization and this deliberate attempt to prevent migration is actually hurting us in the long run uh, in terms of our own social and economic well-being. And of course, migrants also through remittances contribute uh, economic wealth to their uh, 
countries of origin as well. And so we also sort of curtail economic development in low-income countries. Uh, and so it, it, it benefits nobody, this process of criminalization. So to get back to your original question, I think what we need to do is to rethink migration policy as something that we, we frame in the context of management. How do we manage migration in an orderly fashion to make sure that it works for both us as the receiving countries and for the sending countries, the, the countries of origin as well. Uh, the criminalization of migration just works counter to that uh, to that objective. Got it. And in terms of confronting climate change itself, what, what can we do on a, a policy level? Yes, this is one of the great policy challenges of our time. Uh, and there's so many different ways that we can go about it. We need to, there's three things that scientists talk about. Um, they talk about mitigation of greenhouse gases. In other words, to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions. And we know what that is. That means to convert our energy uh, supply from fossil fuel to, uh, to renewables or non-fossil fuel sources and to essentially get uh, the economy onto electricity that's generated through means other than burning fossil fuels and to get away from oil and coal and, and, the, and, and the, the economy is moving in that direction, but it's moving too slowly right now. So we need to sort of kickstart that movement. Uh, the second thing that scientists talk about is adaptation. And so how it, it, inevitably we are going to have to respond in some way to some of the uh, challenges that we've already sort of locked ourselves into. We are already locked into a warming of the planet of another degree or so uh, Celsius, another two to three degrees Fahrenheit. Um, if we can control our greenhouse gas emissions, it won't go any warmer than that. But if we don't, then it becomes even warmer over the course of this century. So we're going to have to adapt, whether that's to rising sea levels, whether that's to extreme heat events. So scientists um, encourage policymakers to think about adaptation policy and how to do that best. And then the third thing is migration policy, which is that people are going to move. There are demographic changes in the world that are happening apart from climate change. So for example, um, population growth rates in Europe and in wealthy countries like Japan and so on, are very low. Um, people just simply don't have a lot of children. So in other parts of the world, like Sub-Saharan Africa, South Asia, uh, families tend to have uh, more children. And so there's this imbalance in demographic growth. So we need to use migration policy constructively to, uh, to essentially ensure that, that people have access to opportunities and that our own economies and the economies of, of low-income countries as well uh, grow uh, using demographic growth constructively, I guess you could say. So there's these three sort of policy domains that we really need to focus on. And I know I'm asking a lot of policymakers because they tend to like to focus on one simple single thing, um, but they're going to have to learn to walk and chew gum <laughs> and do time. multiple things at once. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. That's how we get to the answers. Mm -hmm. And just thinking about <clears throat> high impact areas, what countries do you see will have the, the highest impact if we don't change, if we don't take those policy changes and we continue on the path that we are with the gas and carbon emissions? And um, what are some of the areas that um, may be impacted the most? Well, uh, in geographic terms, uh, sort of dry areas in the mid latitudes and the tropics are uh, most highly exposed. In practical terms and in, in political terms, what that means is places like the southwestern United States, uh, mm -hmm. California and the southwest. 
uh, it means South Asia, so India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, that part of the world. Uh, it means Sub-Saharan Africa, uh, so both from West Africa through to East Africa, uh, and parts of Southeast Asia. These are places where we already see uh, extreme weather events, so tropical cyclones and hurricanes. Uh, it means places that are experiencing droughts on a regular basis, wildfires. Climate change is going to amplify the impacts of those types of events. And so uh, right now around the world, approximately 20 million people each year are displaced from their homes because of weather related events that I just described, flooding as well. Uh, and uh, those numbers are just gonna keep going up uh, more sharply as the climate warms. Uh, and especially in that period sort of 2050 to 2100, uh, when, uh, when many young listeners to this podcast are senior citizens, the world is going to be very different uh, if we don't do anything about, um, about climate change. There will be certain parts of the world, like South Asia, for example, where summertime temperatures are going to routinely be uh, over 100 degrees Fahrenheit, essentially wow. beyond the range of human habitability. So uh, there are some very severe changes that are coming down the pipe if we don't change our ways uh, soon. So 2050 is sort of where scientists see the magic, uh, the magic mm -hmm. transition point, because between now and 2050, which isn't a whole lot of time, yeah, it's only 30, 30 years, years, we have an opportunity to curtail our greenhouse gas emissions and, and to flatten the curve in terms of uh, global warming. Uh, but if we do nothing over the next 20 years or so, things just start to accelerate. Um, and so what we will see, I mean, we're already seeing changes around yeah. the world right now. There are small communities in coastal parts of the United States and Canada and elsewhere where people are already having to relocate because of climate hazards. And those numbers just simply grow exponentially after 2050 if we do nothing. And that's the important part is the if we do nothing bit, because if we do take action quickly, then we can avoid all that very you know, dark future. Um, but it's up to us to make those decisions now. Uh, otherwise, we're, we get ourselves locked in. Right. Um just taking those steps because the the earth has a way of recovering and healing itself but we gotta give it a little space we, we gotta get off its back <laughs> uh and let it do what it needs to so we talked about the areas that will be impacted the most so let's say you live in california or texas where do you migrate where's the destination you know, where is this higher influx of migrants going to? About three years ago now, I was actually invited to a workshop in Portland, Oregon, uh, and it was organized by Portland State University, uh, the University of Washington and the uh, governments of King County, which is the main county for Seattle uh, and uh, for the city of Portland, Oregon. And essentially, they are expecting an influx of people from California and the Southwest uh, in coming decades because of climate change. I mean, it's already the, the Pacific Northwest is already a popular destination for migrants from other parts of the US, including uh, California. But essentially, they're looking at the um, at the climate uh, projections and they're seeing that Arizona, California, New Mexico, there's going to be no water in those places in coming decades and the wildfire risks and so on are just going to go through the roof. And so they expect that they will see additional migrants uh, from the Southwest in coming decades. So the purpose of that workshop was to sort of try to pin down some projections in terms of numbers and when people will arrive 
so that the county governments can begin planning infrastructure builds. Uh, because if you need to build wastewater treatment facilities and um, you know water grids and electrical grids and all the other things that cities need as they grow, they need at least you know, 15 to 20 years lead time to build that infrastructure. So what they're looking at is, when do we need to start building infrastructure to accept this uh, influx of migrants from the Southwest? So uh, people are already starting to think about the reality. So there's a very good example of where people are going to, to move the redistribution of population in the US, if you will. Right, yeah, and that will in itself have <clears throat> policy implications and just in terms of population and demographics and how do you take care of this new influx of, of migrants and how does that affect economies all connected um and honestly canada might be a hot destination <laughs> that might be you know the the next spot to the hot spot to be <laughs> right now it's a little bit too chilly for me i i must say I, i've been to montreal i've been to montreal but that was during the summer and I think it was maybe it was it was it had to have been June. <clears throat> it had to have been June. And it was like maybe 75, 76 degrees. Absolutely beautiful, you know. But that's that's as high it was getting. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you know, Canada's experiencing uh global warming as well. Uh and our northern areas actually are warming more rapidly uh than other parts of the country or indeed other parts of the world. So up in the Canadian Arctic, for example, they've already experienced several degrees of warming. And so they're seeing a retreat of sea ice and, and, and so on. Now, Ontario, or sorry, Canada, I live in Ontario, which is mm -hmm. the southernmost province, is never going to be like Texas or California. Right, no, no, no. We're still going to have winter. <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> we have bigger issues to <laughs> confront if that's the case. Yeah. We're, we're still going to be cold in wintertime, but we're warming as well. But, um, you know, the United States is, the I think, the fourth largest source of immigrants to Canada. Now, most of those immigrants are economic migrants right now. But conceivably, um, you know, the, the northern parts of the United States, the northeastern part of the U.S. or the southern parts of Canada may, be, you know, in climatic terms, become much more attractive in coming decades uh, as southern parts of the U.S. become hotter uh, and in the west become drier and in the southeast uh, become more exposed to extreme tropical storms and, of course, sea level rise that will affect South Florida. Um, so, so there, I've seen uh, reports done in Cleveland and in Buffalo, New York, uh, local officials, local media saying, are we going to receive some of these migrants from, from the southern parts of the U.S.? And the answer is conceivably, depends on what the economic opportunities will be for, for people. Uh, but yeah, you could see a, a south to north migration. Uh, maybe it'll stop at the Canadian border. Maybe it'll come right over. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. If anybody's interested in um, looking into this further, giving some resources, um, if they want to research this more in depth. Well, I mean, one starting point, obviously, without blowing my own horn too loudly, is the report Please, that you mentioned yes. uh, by the Migration Policy it's Institute. It's an amazing report. Mm -hmm. that's, a, that's available freely online. Uh, there's an organization called the International Organization for Migration, or IOM. I think it's iom.int is their website, and they have a whole database uh, and set of reports on how climate affects global migration patterns. There's lots of great researchers in the United States who've been doing a lot of great work uh, on, uh, on climate and migration. And I'll just name a couple of them, just shout outs to Clark Gray down at uh, University of North Carolina. 
Chapel Hill, Elizabeth Fussell, who is at Brown University in Providence, uh, and Lori Hunter out at the University of Colorado Boulder, just three of my favorites, but there's lots of great researchers down in the States. Uh, and just quite frankly, Google climate change plus migration, and then, you know, you will be amazed at how many resources are out there. Uh, and, and a lot of people are giving some serious thought to these questions. Well, Dr. McLemon, uh, I appreciate you and what you're doing. This really does take a, a global effort, right? We all have to come together. It has to be comprehensive. One thing about environment, think about the people and its impact. Uh, so I appreciate the work that you do. Well, I, thanks for having me on this podcast. I think this is the most important next step is to take the scientific evidence and get it out there uh, for people to hear who aren't involved in scientific research, but need to know this stuff because ultimately they're going to be voters and they're going to make decisions about who makes the, the policy choices in the future. So the more we can share this information, I, I love the podcast. I love the theme. I love the name and uh, good luck with this in the future. Thank you. Thank you to lead researcher, Con Branch, assistant producers, Luke Bianco and David White and music by Brandon Williams. Follow Immigration Nerds on Twitter at IMM Nerds and Erickson Immigration Group on LinkedIn to join in the conversation. I'm Ian Gaines. See you next week.